So Acts chapter 6, verse 8, through Acts chapter 7, verse 8, and it says this. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, "Um, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge that nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall place, uh, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them uh, the, him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Let's pray for our time in the Word. God, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us, Lord, that we can study it. God, we pray now that you would be with us as we look at it. God, that you would speak the message you want to speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. God, teach us Rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness through your word. Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, as I said, we're, we're confronting Stephen here uh, for the first time. and We'll actually be looking at him for a, a number of weeks, probably, I think, five, five or six, uh, five, probably five more weeks. Um, we're going to start out looking at Stephen himself uh, and a, a little bit about what's going on uh, to set up this time that we're going to spend looking at his speech before the council. So looking at verses 8 to 15, we see this description of what is happening with Stephen. And if you remember uh, from prior study uh, in the book of Acts, Stephen was just chosen uh, by the disciples or by the, by the disciples and the apostles together uh, to be one of the seven who were chosen to serve tables, which is essentially helping those, uh, the widows among the community uh, with food and, and perhaps uh, money for shelter or, or money for uh, necessities. And so he was chosen as one of the seven to help in the distribution of food 
and uh, they called it serving tables is, is what they called it. And so uh, Stephen was chosen to essentially do this administrative task, this, this servant uh, task uh, for the church to take care of uh, a situation that was happening where the, the uh, Hellenist Jews um, were not getting, or the Hellenist widows were not getting the distribution that they um, that they uh, that was provided for them, and so Stephen was chosen uh, to be a part of this group. And uh, what we see from this text in verse eight is that Stephen is full of grace and power, and he's doing great wonders and signs among the people. So instead of just being chosen to serve tables, which seems like just a, a duty that uh, someone will be given to, you know, just got to take care of this duty, make sure you get the food from point A to point B and to the right individuals and make sure it gets there in a trustworthy manner. Seems like just administrative duty. But uh, what we know from their choosing of the seven was that these men needed to be full of the Spirit. Uh, and and so there was a, a greater purpose for them going out, not just to complete this duty, but also to preach God's Word as they went, to be uh, willing to be used by God in the leadership position that they were given. And so that's exactly what we see happening with Stephen as he's going out doing his these duties that he's, uh, he's been chosen for, serving the widows that hadn't been getting food. He is out full of grace and power, doing great signs and wonders among the people. And as we've seen from our study of Acts, uh, whenever the disciples or apostles are doing great things, uh, usually there's someone that's opposing them somehow. And so that's the case with Stephen. And so he's out there doing signs and wonders among the people and uprises uh, an opposition to him, as we see in verses 9 uh, to 14. Uh, verses 9 to 14 accounts this, uh, this group that rose up, mainly the synagogue of the freedmen and then some others uh, that it lists, people from Cyrenia, uh, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia who, came, who rose up to dispute with Stephen. Now, those that are coming up to dispute would have, uh, would have been a very zealous group, okay, because uh, they're either uh, Jews that have, uh, that have uh, dispersed from Jerusalem to other places, and, and because they desire to come be a part of religious life and be closer to the temple, they hold the temple in high regard. So uh, things that are being said about the temple, they're very attuned to and zealous about. And so they've come back, actually, from uh, various locations around the Mediterranean to be in Jerusalem where they can be closer to temple and religious life uh, of their Judaic faith. And so they're very zealous for their faith. And so they rise up uh, as they see this, uh, see Stephen and the apostles as a threat to uh, their normal functioning uh, in Jerusalem. So they rise up. And uh, as, as you read this passage, you see a lot of similarities to Christ when he was uh, being confronted with opposition. You see a trial that's, uh, that, that is brought up. The, Stephen has been brought before a council. And what happens at the council is that they gather people to falsely testify against Stephen. You might remember that same thing happened to Christ. He's brought to a trial and many are risen up to, to speak falsely against him. Same thing is happening to Stephen here. So you see that they rise up against Stephen. It says in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom with which uh, and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigate men uh, to say that we've heard him say blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
in verse 13, they continue their, uh, their accusations saying that this man never ceases to speak uh, words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And that, that last accusation is going to be very important because the whole speech that Stephen gives in response is essentially him saying this one fact. And that's that God is not confined to a single location. He's not confined to a temple and he never was. Okay? And that's the view that these zealous uh, uh, individuals had. You know, they've left their homes to come to Jerusalem to be close to temple life. They hold the temple and religious life in high regard. And Stephen is saying, listen, that's not the central piece. God has been with us in spite of the existence of a temple. And so that's what we'll see throughout his speech, that theme being hit over and over again, that God has been with his people outside of the presence of of the temple in Jerusalem. And it starts tonight uh, with Abraham. But throughout this speech, we'll see him talking about Abraham, how God was with Abraham, how God was with uh, Joseph, how God was with Moses, how God was with the kings and the prophets. Uh, And then finally, we'll see the judgment that comes upon Stephen for the statements that he's making. Stephen's speech reminds us that, uh, it reminds the leaders that God's presence has never been limited to the temple, but rather he abides with his people. And the same is even more true for us today. If we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He doesn't live in a structure built by men. He lives inside of us. He's taken up residence in us. The key point of Stephen's speech is this, that God, the God of glory, is with us. So they're rising up in opposition against, against, uh, against Stephen and bringing these accusations against him just like they did against Jesus. And you would think, and I, I would think personally, if, if I'm being attacked by a numerous uh, number of individuals and brought before a, a leadership council, you know, you'd be stressed and you'd be breaking under the pressure and you'd be really, you know, anxious about the situation. But that's not so with, uh, with Stephen. In fact, the very opposite is true. As we see in verse 15, it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Can you imagine being threatened? I mean, essentially, as we'll see in the, in the result of this council, threatened with his life uh, before these individuals. And here he stands before them with a face of an angel in spite of false accusation, in spite of all these significant threats that are coming against him. And there he is, face like an angel, completely at peace. The fact is, when we are standing for what Christ has called us to stand for and doing what Christ has called us to do, His peace transcends all understanding and comes upon us. Following Christ brings inexplicable peace in our circumstances. And that's certainly true in Stephen's case, as you can't be in a more dire circumstance where you're being faced with what he'll face, stoning by these leaders. And yet he's at peace with a face of an angel. So Stephen's there, he's before the council, and he's before these individuals that are falsely accusing him, and the high priest asks this question. He says, are these things so? 
and then begins Stephen's speech, as we've, as we've talked about. Tonight, we're going to look at just the first portion of his speech. His speech is very long. It's, I think it's the longest, uh, it's the longest sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts. And uh, it really goes through a lot of the history of, um, of Israel and, uh, and a lot of Old Testament background that we wanted to dig into as a fellowship as we have the opportunity. And so uh, we're going to start tonight with Abraham, and we're going to see that uh, God gives Abraham some promises and they're promises of his presence, okay? That God is with Abraham. And the second thing we're going to see is that not only has God given Abraham promises, but those, that those promises are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So we're going to see Abraham, the promises that God gives Abraham, just a few of them. We're going to scratch the surface on Abraham. We could probably spend you know, months just looking at Abraham's life and talking about it. But we're going we're gonna to sum it up in, in half of the message, okay? So, uh, so we're going to see that Abraham was promised the presence of God. And second, we're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises for us. So let's dig in here. Um, starting in verse 2, Stephen replies to this question, are these things so? By saying, brothers and fathers... Hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. At first, he's already come against the things that they're saying. They're saying that he's coming against the temple and our temple life. And what what does Stephen come out with? He said, listen, the God of glory, he didn't appear to Abraham while he was in some temple. He appeared to Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. Not even the same country that these individuals are in worshiping that they held as holy land. Outside of the holy land, God appeared to Abraham. Okay, so the God of glory is appearing to Abraham outside of the holy land that these individuals have come from various places of the Mediterranean to be, to participate in religious life. So the first thing he says is, listen, God is not limited by your understanding of religious life. He is bigger than that. In fact, our forefathers testify to that. We see that in Abraham. The God of glory appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he says to him this, go out from your land and from the land of your kindred and go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed from him uh, him from there into this land in which you are now living. Okay, so he gives a promise, or gives a command to Abraham. The, the command is, go out from the land you're living. Go out from Mesopotamia, leave this land, this land of your ancestors and your fathers and your, your family, leave this land and go to a land that I have prepared for you. Okay, so his first promise to Abraham is land. He's got a land for Abraham. Stephen, uh, Stephen says to them, uh, as he's speaking, he says, okay, so, so he went out from the land of the Chaldeans where he, and lived in Haran. And then uh, he says, God removed him from there into this land, Israel, in which you are now living. So he's saying, listen, God promised Abraham, if you go, I have a land for you. Okay, and he fulfilled that promise to him. We see, uh, we see this in detail if you want to look at more of the detail in uh, Genesis 12 is where, uh, where Abraham is, 
where God meets Abraham and tells him to go uh, forth and gives him uh, the initial covenant, the initial Abrahamic covenant there. So he promises him a land. At this point, this, this promise is given to Abraham. Abraham is 70 years old, okay? He's given him this promise at 70 years old. All right, so uh, like I said, we're going to really be brisk with our, our study of Abraham. We could go into this, I'm just like skipping over thoughts and thoughts and thoughts that we could have about Abraham. But the key is that the first promise that God gives Abraham is a land, right? And he fulfills that, uh, he fulfills that to him. So they go to the land that I'll show you. The second promise that Abraham get, uh, that God gives Abraham is redemption. Okay, so Abraham has left his country. He's gone into this land. And picking up in verse 5, we see an, an astonishing fact for Abraham. One that's really hard to comprehend if you think about it for, for a moment. He says in verse 5, Yet he gave him, that is Abraham, no inheritance in the land that he was in. No inheritance in it not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Okay, so God has given him a promise of land. He says, this is the land I'm going to give you. He's in the land. He's looking at it. He's, there it is. I'm not going to let you possess any of it. In fact, no one in your lineage is going to possess it for another 400 years. Okay, your people are going to be enslaved in another country, not this one, in another one for 400 years before this promise is fulfilled to your offspring. So first we see that that God promises them a land and he's going to fulfill that. Second, we see that in spite of the fact that his fulfillment of the land isn't immediate, like we always like things, he promises redemption. He promises that he will bring salvation. He will bring the promises to pass. He will bring the land to pass. It will take 400 years even, but he will bring it. So he promises redemption is the second promise he gives to Abraham that Stephen hits on here. And you see a a fuller description of this in Genesis 15. Uh, Genesis 15 is, is where, uh, where God talks about this a little further with Abraham. And uh, at this point, he's probably around 80 years old. Okay, uh, So he's, God is promising him no inheritance in the land, uh, but your, your people are going to go down to Egypt is where they'll end up being. And they're going to be there enslaved for 40 years. Uh, so I just want to look briefly at some of what he says in, in uh, chapter 15 of Genesis. And you can look at it further if you'd, if you'd like. Um, But uh, God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, where should I pick up here? Um, We'll start in verse 7. I'm the Lord who brought you out uh, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, and he brought him, uh, brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each, laid each half over, uh, sorry, uh, over against the other. Uh, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when, uh, when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them, drove them away. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell over Abram, and behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with, uh, with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of, the, uh, of Egypt to the great river of uh, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites to the Kenizzites, etc., etc. Um, the point I want you to get from, from that description of Abraham's interaction with God is that God's making this promise that he's going to give him this land, okay? He's going to bring him, save these people out of slavery in another country. And he promises that it's going to be done by his power and might, okay? The, 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 the description of these events here uh, with, uh, between Abraham or, and God are, are a specific covenant uh, practice of the Old Testament, okay? So he, you might remember from the story vaguely, but... Uh, God has him cut up the different animals into two pieces and sets them on either side, okay? So there's a sort of a walkway between the pieces. When you're, when you're setting up an Old Testament covenant, or uh, sorry, an ancient Near East covenant, the person who walks through the pieces that are laid to, to signify the covenant, that's the person held responsible for the covenant being fulfilled. So this isn't just some random vision that God created and okay we're going to I'm going to have I'm going to walk through these pieces it's actually something from the culture the person to walk through these pieces of 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 animal is the one who's saying I sign that I'm the one responsible for fulfilling this covenant okay so this is what Abraham his experience is that God comes and talks to him gives him these promises and then in fact his presence walks through the pieces signifying that God is the one that is going to be held responsible for bringing these promises to pass. Abraham doesn't have to worry about it being on him. Rather, God is going to fulfill his promise. Now, if someone came and told you, listen, uh, I know you're in this place and you don't have any land, but you're going to have land in 400 years. I think I'd like an event like that to happen where God has promised me fulfilling, you know, walking through the pieces saying, listen, I am going to fulfill this covenant. Trust in me. And Abraham, sure enough, does. He believes that God is going to come through. So we see the first promise to Abraham is that he's going to get land. He's going to have a land set apart for his people. Second, we see that redemption is going to come by the hand of God. So the second promise is that it's not going to be by Abraham's strength or by his might, but rather God is going to bring salvation. God is going to rescue his people out of Egypt. He's going to bring them out into this land that he will give them. Finally, we see that uh, Abraham is given a promise of a nation, a nation set apart from the world. Verse 8, he continues, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. This covenant of circumcision is, uh, is a symbol of setting apart this nation as holy 
from the world. And from it stems the, the, uh, the adherence to the whole law and the different purity regulations that were uh, given in the law. And so it symbolizes the, the nation of Israel being set apart as holy from the world. Okay? So these, these are things that we, we would say we aren't bound by things like not being able to eat shellfish and, and these sorts of uh, rules that were applied to uh, the Old Testament people of Israel. Uh, these are the purity laws that were setting apart Israel as holy and set apart uh, from the world. So three promises that are given to Abraham in this uh, that Stephen hits on. First, he promises him a land. Second, he promises redemption by God's hand. Third, he promises a nation. So that's a lot of detail about Abraham, and there's a ton more that we could learn about Abraham, but that's what Stephen gives us, okay? And uh, it's important that we understand it uh, more fully and that we go, go into it more um, because it's not just knowledge and it's not just history, okay? Um, it's, it's true. These are true events. These are the things that happened. And this is knowledge that we can obtain and we can learn from and we can apply to our lives. We can apply a lot to our lives from this information about, about Abraham and his interaction with God. But the fact is, it's a reality for us today that we have to understand even better, and it's understood clearly in Christ Jesus. You see, the promise of a land and the promise of redemption and the promise of a nation is true for us. It's true for us. And I'm going to talk about how that is in our final uh, time together. See, Jesus fulfills the promises that were given to Abraham. The first promise was land, right? So we also are promised land. Do you know where it is? Do you own a foot of it yet? (laughs) No, it's not here. It's not here. Our land is not here. There is no land here that uh, that we should chase after as our home. God has promised us an eternal home in Christ Jesus. He has given us a land, a great land, a land better than any land on this blue ball running through the universe, okay? He's given us heaven in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 verse 20 says that we are citizens of heaven, not of any nation. Our our primary citizenship is not to America. It's not to uh, any nation that you can think of in the world. It's our primary citizenship in Christ is in heaven. Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things unto himself. In Christ, we've been promised a land, just like Abraham was. And that land is not in a temple made by men. It's not in a nation that's set apart in some way. That land is in heaven with God the Father. God has prepared a place for us in heaven where there's no suffering, no pain, no loneliness, no discouragement. He's given us a promise of a land he made to Abraham is true for us and is realized in Christ Jesus. He has a land for us in heaven. The second promise that we said was given to Abraham was one of redemption, that God would bring the redemption to Abraham, that he would bring his offspring out of Egypt unto this land that he had prepared for him. 
It wasn't going to be by Abraham's efforts or his strengths or his great qualities, but rather it was going to be the, by the strong, mighty hand of God. The same is true for us. We have redemption in Christ Jesus. We have eternal salvation in him. And we are freed from the things of this world and given to the things of God. Romans 6, verses 16 to 19 speak of this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Just as the people of Israel, the the descendants of Abraham, were taken captive in Egypt and needed to be saved from it, redeemed from it, by the hand of the Lord. So we are enslaved to the things of this world apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we serve our selfish nature. We build up ourselves and and do things for us and us and us, gaining more for us and for our glory. But in Christ, we are freed from that slavery unto sin and given over to slavery to righteousness in Christ Jesus. He's redeemed us by the great hand, by his great hand through his son, Jesus Christ. We each have to come to recognize that on our own, we live in rebellion to God's intentions for us. That our only hope is to accept the forgiveness found in Christ Jesus. Just as God uh, saved his people out of Egypt and brought them through the waters into this land that he had promised to Abraham. So too, he saves us from the things we give, us, give ourselves over to by Christ Jesus on the cross. It's nothing that we're able to do on our own to earn that. Christ has earned it for us on the cross and only by faith in him are we restored to God the Father. So God's promise of land is found in Christ Jesus. His promise of redemption is found in Christ Jesus. Finally, this promise of a nation set apart is also found in in Christ Jesus. Fact is, when, when you have recognized that you are a sinner in, in need of a Savior and have given yourself over to Jesus, you don't start a journey of independence and just you and Him and that's it. No, you are joined to a community of people who have had the same experience as you, who once were lost and now are found and now sing praises to God the Father because of it. You're given a land, you're given redemption, but you're also given a people, a body to be a part of. Romans 12 verses 3 to 8 speak about this. It says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though, are, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with his zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The Christian journey isn't one of independence, of following a set of knowledge and information. Rather, it's a a story of redemption where you were saved to serve one another as Christ has served you. That's the amazing thing about Christianity. It doesn't come in to me and just stop here, and now I'm good, and so I don't have to worry about anybody else. Rather, His grace has been poured out on me, and it, it gushes over to those around me. I desire that more would come to the knowledge that Christ Jesus is their only hope. He is their Savior. We're given a promise of a land, eternal home in heaven. We're given a promise of redemption through faith in Christ Jesus. We're given a promise of a nation, the body of Christ, that builds up and strengthens one another. We're joined to a community of believers. And while we're here, we have a community to bless and to be blessed by. The promise doesn't end with us, it flows through us to others. So we see that Stephen's speech has started out strongly stating that the God of glory is with us. He, he doesn't just reside in a temple made by man. But he re- resides in those who place their faith in him and in his son, Christ Jesus. He's given us a land in heaven. He's given us redemption in his son. He's given us a body to belong to. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have provided eternal hope in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be worried about possessions and things of this world because you have given us a hope of heaven, of your very presence. Lord, we thank you that you've provided the promise of redemption. In fact, you have already redeemed us as we place our faith in Jesus. Lord, because of him, we stand righteous before you. Lord, we pray for all who have not placed their faith in Jesus, that they would do it now. They would call on him as Savior. We call on him as Lord. He is truly our only hope. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us the promise of a people to belong to. Lord, you have created your church. You have built your church such that we must depend on one another. You've given us a variety of gifts that, that we might serve one another. Lord, you you used Stephen who was serving tables, just distributing food to widows who needed food. You used him to mightily proclaim your gospel before the council and the high priest, to speak boldly of your presence with your people. Lord, may we be willing 
to be used. May you fill us with your spirit that in our circles of influence, we will be used for your glory. Lord, you no longer reside in a temple. You reside in our hearts. We take you wherever we go. May it be evident to all who we interact with. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.